the message is called A Social History of Grace because I want to not just talk about grace, but I want to talk about how we've come to see grace socially or culturally, okay? Um, and you're supposed to have an introduction as a pastor. I don't, other than to say it, it'll sound maybe a lot like heresy to begin with, but that's okay. Um, we'll end up with orthodoxy at the end. So um, when, whenever you tackle sacred cows, when, when you see a sacred cow, I kind of have a motto. Anyone know what my motto is? Yeah, it's a good time for barbecue. I like that interaction. So, um, so we're going to do that, but, but sacred cows, you know what a sacred cow is? A sacred cow is um, kind of a, a, a not very kind borrow from Hindu religion where cows are sacred, but, but then they're on roads or they're in places and, you, and you, you can't deal with them, you can't touch them, and so you just have to kind of leave them there. And in America, we have this view that, well, that's silly. You should deal with sacred cows differently. So it's a bit of a non-friendly way of looking at Hindu religion. Um, and so maybe I shouldn't have played into that um, as, I'm, as I'm thinking it through. All right, so um, my introduction that I should have skipped. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 10. Let's just dive right in. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, if you can read that. So this is kind of one of the hallmark passages on grace, and it simply says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the, the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So the idea here is what we're talking about in this verse, saving grace. Saving grace. In other words, the grace that saves you, the grace that redeems you, the grace that liberates you, or uh, a very technical idea here in Scripture is the grace that adopts you into the family of God, from being outside uh, and estranged to being inside. That's that saving grace. Now, it's an important thing that we see here in this verse, and it's an important part of theology, that we don't manipulate this. We don't um, put God over a barrel to where he has to uh, adopt us, redeem us, purchase us, buy us in, uh, forgive us, accept us, that he does this of his own, that this is what he was doing through Christ on the cross, and that it is his pleasure to adopt us into his family and that we get to sit back and go, it's the grace of God that saves us. And all we do is, is receive that with faith. So that's saving faith. Spurgeon said it well. Um, this kind of view of saving grace, he says this, saving faith is an immediate relation to Christ, accepting, receiving, resting upon him alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of God's grace. I, I, you just can't say it tighter or better than that. Um, so that's uh, the idea of saving grace. Now the problem with saving grace is that in the Protestant church, we have so constricted grace to be co-synonymous with saving grace. In other words, we've created, I believe, an idol out of the idea of saving grace, okay? To where we can't talk about anything else because if we talk about anything else, somehow it, it ends up being 
counter to or dissonant with the idea of saving grace. What happens when we, when we do systematic theology is we run a risk because systematic theology is where we systematically walk through different doctrines of the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit or salvation or the church or whatever it might be and we kind of lift them out and look at them as particulars, what I would call maybe jewels and we study them to try to understand them and systematic theology has a lot of positives to it. What can be the downside though is when you look at things as jewels that you disconnect them from their place within a tapestry or a mosaic so that you can understand how they relate to other things. So when you lift saving grace out and you say, this is the crown jewel or this is a, a diamond, and then you look at something else and it's a ruby or whatever it might be, you always kind of go, well, this is really what matters. At the end of the day, I'm going to choose this. Well, if we're looking at this, we really should just be pointing back to this and looking at this one because in comparison, this one is obviously so much greater. But biblical theology, um, a close cousin to historical theology, which I mentioned just because I like historical theology because it has the word history in it, but biblical theology and historical theology is set in time and in context. So that when you look at something, however important it is, you see it in relation to the things that come before, the things that come after, and the things kind of all around, above and below. And you begin to understand how that then fits or should fit into our understanding of faith. So what has happened in the Protestant church is two things. One, we're in reaction to the Catholic church, which has a, a much greater focus on works. The social justice tradition was always a bigger tradition in the Catholic church than the Protestant church. We tend to be very theological and very heady in the Protestant church, and we look at all the doings of the Catholics and we say, we're going to come to the opposite extreme and say, you shouldn't be doing that, you're distracting from the glory of this crown jewel saving grace, okay? The second thing that happens here um, with Protestants is that we get very transactional in our understanding of salvation. We, we get very evangelical, uh, very uh, evangelistically focused where we want to move people through this process whereby they become saved. And we want to do it more, and we want to do it more, and we want to do it more, which is not a bad thing. But pretty soon what you end up doing is realizing that you're camped at the baptism waters, and you've turned into a salvation industrial complex. And it's all about the transaction, and you've lost sight of the person before they were saved. What's really going on as they're being saved maybe, or how that's working out in their particular life, and then you lose sight of them after they're saved, and you camp here, and all your messages are here, and all your thinking is here, and all that we see is here, and, and we never get beyond that moment in time because, again, our systematic or the crown jewel is tied here at the cross with saving grace. Does that make sense? Okay. So... In the Protestant tradition, I think we have a problem in that we've turned grace, saving grace, into an idol. And we're not supposed to worship saving grace or the atonement. We're supposed to worship God and the atonement or saving grace or the cross are incredibly important things that happened and do happen to us as God works relationally with people that he loves and is drawing to himself. 
Okay, so here's, thank you, here's, here's a key thing in this verse that you can barely see. That was really bad graphic work on my part. All right, um, do you see it? Let's go back. Maybe you can see it again. You ready? You ready? There it is. I, I don't know how that didn't get brighter. Um, so there's a four. Well, what's the four there for? Anybody? Because this next verse is connected to the first thought. So we've been saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's a gift of God. You didn't do it. The kid who's adopted didn't do the adoption. He's the recipient, or she's the recipient of that adoption. And, and it's an amazing thing. And that adoption happened, why? Because there was a family, there was a mom, there was a dad, there were parents who had a desire to bring a child in to the fullness of all that would be in that family. We have been saved by grace for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Even before that transaction, even before the saving, God knew who we were. God is creating us with certain gifts and talents and passions. He's, he's dialing it in because his whole goal in this whole majestic, uh, majestic thing, not to the glory of grace, but to the glory of him, who gives grace, that we would come into being able to work alongside him for his purposes in this world. We have a role to play in this world. I don't care who you are, what age you are, what gender you are, what ethnicity you are, what your IQ is, what your, your personality makeup is. It doesn't matter. You have a purpose and a role to play in the church, the body of Christ, and in the kingdom. God knows it. God wants it. God's excited to bring you into it. And it follows necessarily right on the heels of saving grace. Do you see that? So here's what happens in the Protestant church. It's, re it's a really frustrating thing. Um, you can't talk about doing at all. Unless you're in a, what I would have in the past called a Baptist church, but I've, I've learned to catch myself before saying things like that. Um, or like a more conservative doctrinal church where it's, it's more rigid in terms of behaviors, but that's a different kind of thing and doing. But, but otherwise, just doing in general, we just can't focus on it or talk about it that much because people begin to say you're talking about works. Oh, you're right. It's kind of a dirty word, isn't it? Or, oh man, um, you're right. I guess I'm focusing on a ruby, which is less than... Your diamond, oh, I, I guess I'm not, I don't know the Christian language as well, or I didn't learn how to, how to obsess on this language as well as you did. I'm sorry, I'll repent of that, and I'll come back to just singing this, this song or playing this one-string guitar. I, I'm sorry, you know, and you can't talk about it. It's, it's, and this is what it would be like if I was an adopted kid. It'd be like going up to somebody and being like, you know what? I want to go to Harvard. I want to go to Harvard. 
I'm excited about the education I could get there and what that could do for me. And the person looks at me and says, um, you're so ungrateful. You were adopted. Stop talking about Harvard. You were adopted. What is wrong with you from distracting about your adoption? Have you lost your appreciation? Do you think it's about you? Stop talking about Harvard. You were adopted. Yeah, I, I know. I know my parents are wonderful. They're the greatest people in the world. I have, I have such an unbelievable identity in that. It colors everything I do. It defines me. I get my name through it. But I want to go to Harvard. There you go again. You're ungrateful. How can you talk about something like that? It pales in comparison to the fact that you were adopted and you need to focus on the main thing. But don't you understand, I was created to be an entrepreneur. I want to go start something. I want to make a difference. There you go. It's all about you, isn't it? You want to make a difference. Yeah, yeah, you need to go repent and figure out how to talk about your adoption better and praise your parents better. But I want to I wanna make them happy. My dad's industrious. He's a businessman. I want to go be an entrepreneur. Oh, you're competing with your dad, are you? Did you think, you think it was you that got yourself adopted? You want to take away from his glory? What's wrong with you? Or if the tool that's bought out of the hardware store, the hammer that, that is bought out of that store by somebody, by the carpenter, like, like we are bought out and redeemed by God. We were purchased by God. And then we go out and we're a hammer that God intends to hammer nails with. And, and when we go to start doing that, somebody says, What's wrong with you? You have to stay at the point of purchase. You have to think about you being bought. You have to think that you didn't deserve it. Why are you going to talk about hammering nails? Why are you going to talk about working? You sound too Catholic. It's really about you, isn't it? You're forcing God to like you because you think you're going to work. No, God already likes me. He bought me. Not only that, but he takes joy in seeing me fulfill my purposes. And, and when, when I am able to do this function and work this way, I get to be closer to God and God's purposes. I get to be used in a meaningful way. There's intimacy that comes with that. It doesn't take away from God at all. In some strange way, it only furthers and magnifies the relationship that happens because of that transaction. The transaction is not the idol, you see. And so what happens in the, in the, in the Protestant church is we stay at the foot of the cross. This is going to sound like heresy. But Jesus isn't on the cross anymore. Where is Jesus? Where's Jesus? He's seated at the right hand of God in the throne room where we do business and where in being saved, we get to go boldly in the presence of our Father, receiving gifts of the Holy Spirit and being able to put our heart there of our pain and our suffering and our fatigue because life is difficult and receive that relationship that happens because Jesus is not still on the cross. Now the cross is the mechanism in his death by which I'm bought. But if I stay at the foot of the cross, I'm, I'm somehow missing that that jewel 
is connected to other things or aspects. Um, I'm, uh, I've been told that when I draw, I've got to be careful of, of, of shapes. Um, sometimes they're too biological in nature. Um, uh, let's, let's be careful here. Um, So the cross is here. But that leads into something else. The throne is here. This is saving grace. But that unbelievable saving grace moves me along to living as one bought redeemed, loved, cherished, included. Does that make sense? Okay. Did we survive that? You guys okay? Okay. All right, let's move this along. So so what then of grace? Because am I, at the end of the day, attacking grace? I'm not at all. What I'm trying to do is make a distinction because Protestants, which I am, by the way, we love half-truths. We love them. And what I'm trying to say is there's a half-truth here. There's another category of grace. There's actually several more, but I'm going to take a dominant one and just say the other category of grace is sustaining grace. Sustaining grace. Because when we camp on saving grace, this is the definition we give to the word, the Greek word, Caris, uh, it's unmerited favor. Anybody ever heard that? Okay, I don't have, I should have brought it. There's 50 pages in, in, the, in Kittle on grace, the, the biggest Greek dictionary there is, right? Unmerited favor is true, but it's, it's, it's tied just to saving grace, and, and, it, and it misses so much of what we mean by grace. When I, when I say grace before I meal, uh, am, I, am I doing unmerited favor to the food? You know what I'm saying? Um, when I'm grateful for something, am I doing unmerited favor? There's, it's so much broader than the saving grace kind of definition we've given it. Um, fair enough? So sustaining grace. What is sustaining grace? Well, we could spend a lot of time on this, but... Um, I want to just go to one place here. So Paul's talking about his trials, and he's talking about his suffering, and he's talking about how Jesus has not taken away the point of suffering, and he says it's okay. Um, and, and he's talking about kind of this whole thing that's going on with him, and he comes to this conclusion. He says, but he, meaning the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul says this, Therefore, because of that, that input, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The other phrase he used right above this was, When I am weak, then I am strong. Our Christian life is is a life characterized by suffering and weakness and dark nights of the soul and trials and difficulties, if we act like it isn't, 
if we listen to the preachers that think we should all be healthy and wealthy, when we hit these other times, we're, we're not going to know what to do or what to think. The truth is, it's characterized by challenge and difficulty and struggle. And when we find ourselves in a weak place, what Paul's saying, there's an opportunity here for Christ's power to literally rest on us. And he says, that's such a good thing. I want more of that. And what he's doing here is he's defining grace. But he said, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What is grace? Power. We have this misunderstanding about grace and culture. The way we use it normally is, uh, hey man, just give him some grace. You know, like, um, quit being high and mighty, you know. You should have more grace for people. So what that they're sinning? So what that they're running around doing things they shouldn't? You know, who are you? You, you God? Just, you know, give them some grace. Meaning, let them alone in their sin. Let them alone in their confusion. Let them alone and just tolerate them. That's, how, that's one of the ways in which we culturally use grace. And, and there's nothing there about power bestowed. There's everything there about just a vacuum and isolation. That cultural definition of grace is completely different to what Paul's saying here. What Paul's saying here is, listen, sustaining grace is grace that when you're weak has power to it. Power that comes up underneath you. Power that holds you and will not let you fall or ultimately fail. Power that you can trust. Power that you need. Power that allows you to feel like you have a relationship with Christ or, or God the Father. And that somehow makes this whole thing work even in the difficulties or the trials of human life and human existence. That is sustaining grace. So if we were to draw it, it's basically... We have saving grace which initiates us into the kingdom and into the family. And we have sustaining grace which holds us and carries us and bears us and demonstrates to us that our Father will not leave us alone. Or that the shepherd will be there through the watches of the night even though we go through the valley of the shadow of death. That's unbelievable. So as we continue on, that's what we find. That's the kind of grace that Reinhold Niebuhr meant when he penned his famous prayer that millions of challenged alcoholics have used as kind of the nightly prayer. And it's this, God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. God, I'm an alcoholic. I can't even control my own self. So give me the grace to accept the aspects of life that aren't going to change my past, the relationships I've destroyed, the damage I've wrought, um, my own failings and weaknesses that I can't even just mentally choose my own reality. Give me the grace to accept the things that I cannot change. But then the courage, the works, the gifting, the help, the assistance, 
the power to change the things that I can, and then the wisdom to always follow behind you to try to do what's right, to know the one from the other. That's, that's good stuff right there. Okay? But if we never move on from the cross, we never find our role in the kingdom of God. And when we never find our role in the kingdom of God and we never have a, a difficult time fulfilling that role, we never really understand that God will continue to carry us forward even when we falter and even when we fail. And so everything is set in time. They're not jewels. They're things woven together. When the, the, when the disciples stood there and watched Jesus ascend into heaven, they kind of stood there and, and then the angel showed up and the angel said, what are you looking at? And they're like, oh, he, he went up there. And they're like, the same Jesus that went up will return. Now move along from here. I, uh, when I was in Israel, I told the story at one of our worship nights, but when I was in Israel, I got to meet the archbishop of the Palestinian version of the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, unbelievable man. Unbelievable man. The really long goatee. Um, and if you've gone to Jerusalem, there's something really interesting. There's the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And the Church of the Holy Sepulcher is where Calgary was and then um, also where Jesus was buried just, just a little bit over. The church is big enough to cover both. There's a garden tomb that most Protestants go to, which has, has, um, really doesn't have any archaeological uh, support to it. The, the best archaeology would say, um, or just church tradition would say that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is the best bed of that's where it was. Um, but Protestants can't stand it because it, it doesn't look or smell like anything we're used to. Um, you go in and it's incense and it's Greek Orthodox and it's Catholic and it's priests and it's bells and it's chimes and it's dark uh, and closed. And, and that's not us as Protestants. We like sitting under a tree with our Bible and singing praise songs. And so the garden tomb in Jerusalem uh, or where most um, Protestant pilgrims go because somehow it just feels like that should be the tomb of Jesus to us more. Like that has anything to do with it, right? But so we kind of go there. But the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, there's four denominations that share it, okay? One that's on the outside and a Muslim family that's been in Jerusalem for centuries that has the key because the four denominations that share it can't get along. And so a Muslim family for hundreds of years has had the key. They unlock and close it. So the four that are in there, Greek Orthodox, Catholic, I'm going to totally forget the other two, but Coptic, I think, is one. Uh, Armenian, I think, is the other. Um, they share it. Now, the actual part, so there's kind of two different parts. There's a part where, where they believe, the, where the rock really is, there is a rock, um, and they believe kind of where Jesus was crucified. And then over a ways is, is where the tomb would have been. Now the rock, it's, it's the Catholic and the Greek Orthodox are there. Lots of incense, lots of candles. And you can put your hand through an area. They have it all built around and actually touch the rock that was Calgary or, or would believe to be Calgary. And if you go down to where the tomb would have been, it's all enclosed in a, in a kind of an altar thing. And you can go in and, and kind of come out. Now... There's four, so they take turns breaking up 
who kind of is in control of, of that throughout the day. They're on a clock. And those four different denominations trade on the clock. Who gets to go in and do their kind of ceremonial things and, and perform the rites and the rituals and, and whatnot. And what, um, what had happened the week before I was in Jerusalem was, so you have whoever the head priest would be of the different denominations, and then they have their attendants. And the attendants go in and clean up after the last kind of faith went in there, which is a nice way for saying purify it so that their holy guy can, can come in and, and do, the, do the thing. Well, whatever the denomination was that was in was, was late getting out um, over their time allotment, and it actually led to a fistfight is, is what everyone kind of was, was saying. And uh, I thought that was really funny. And that's maybe because I don't feel the way most people do or I'm irreverent. Everyone else on our trip really took that as a like, oh my gosh, like Christians. And I just couldn't get over like, man, I wish I could have seen that. <laughs> like, he's got his hair. Like he's got him by the crucifix. I don't know. Um, but so when I was with this archbishop uh, in Jerusalem, he asked this really funny question. Uh, there's a group of us sitting there and and it was this unbelievable interchange, um, uh, and he was very direct, and he, he, he was holding a pen, and so his, his finger was like this the whole time. And one of my friends actually got a picture, and I, I thought it was probably best not to show the picture. But, but so it's just this really funny interchange, yet incredibly deep with this guy. And then he finally just said, but he's very straightforward, he finally just says, what have you come to me for? Am I a relic? Am I an antiquity that you should come to see me as, as part of your pilgrimage? What have you come for? What do you want from me? Let's talk. Let's get down to the heart of the matter. Am I an antiquity? And then he says, did you go to that place? What place, you know? Did you go to that place where they worship where he is not? And I just thought, wow. Hearing him say that and coming out of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and just kind of seeing religion and how it can do its thing, that phrase, did you go to the place where they worship him where he is not? The disciples were standing there and the angel said, um, it's, it's on to the next thing now. And then Protestants sitting at the cross sometimes for forever now, we can always touch it. We can always go back to it. We can always realize this has defined us, been a part of our narrative and our story. But, but sometimes we have to look at Protestants and say, but do you want to worship him now where he is? Do you want to go with him where he would like to take you? Do you want to find him because he wants to be found by you? And there's something about how these things are set in time that will help us understand the Christian life. Because I find that there's so much confusion in Christianity. Because we can't even talk about Christianity. We just have to talk about the... Oh, I was going to say sacred cow. Uh, we have to talk about the idols that we have. 
We have to, I have to preach about those. And we, and we play the little games we meet together. And we, we have to do the dance and say the right words. And, and, and what we begin to find out is, aren't we just getting tied up in the ritualistic things ourselves? And don't those become some kind of a barrier to us actually having and experiencing the relationship that we were meant to have? we got to set this in context, Right? So the context here is you're saved by saving grace. And works is a sequence that comes into that. And grace doesn't leave off. Grace now plays a different role and it sustains us. There's another one here. The Holy Spirit gifts into that. The Holy Spirit gifts into that. We've done something really funky with spiritual gifts. We act as in the transaction, you come out of the baptism waters and, and you, you pick a card or a sticker is slapped on you. There, you got one. Got one what? You got a spiritual gift. What is it? I don't know. Take one of those little gift tests. And as long as it isn't like speaking in tongues or prophecy or healing people, we'll believe you. Um, and, and so it's, but here's your gift. Why? Because everything's mechanical. You know, here's your latte. You know, here's your, your goodie treat receipt so that if you come back at 1 o'clock, we'll take more of your money. Like, I, you know, it's, it's business and transaction, and I'm saying it's relational. God gives us the Holy Spirit, and you know what I think the Holy Spirit can do? He could give you five gifts this week. Because guess what? You might need five things this week to survive this week. And so something we never do is we never pray for gifts. And, and a long time ago, I was driving on the freeways of California, and I just... Started thinking, hey, God, are we allowed to ask for spiritual gifts? I mean, is that, I don't know, can I? Like, because it'd be kind of cool, um, if it's okay, that is. Can I have more than one? Is that selfish? Like, and I'm realizing, like, what's going on here? I've got a purpose to serve. If I understand that and I take a look at it and I look at God and say, I can't do that, I'll try. I'll tackle it um, if you're with me. But you, um, can you give me some of the tools that I'm going to need? Maybe even some of the ones I don't realize I'm going to need. And I'll just trust that they're going to be there at the right time. Because you know what? Jesus looked at a bunch of guys, half of whom didn't know how to talk publicly. And he says to them, listen, you're going, to be, you're going to be taken prisoner and brought in front of the magistrates, but don't you worry. For that, at that time, at that time, you will be given what to say because it won't be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you so that you will be able to articulate in public speaking the witness that God wants for you to bear about his glory. That's a spiritual gift. It's Jesus promising that that gift will be there when it's needed. How many other things will Jesus say to us about the Holy Spirit gifting us for his purpose? But guess what? We really don't need to worry about that. Why? Because ain't none of us really stepping into the mission of God anyways because we're too busy talking the lingo and worshiping saving grace and kneeling at the cross. I know I'm being a bit irreverent. I'm doing it on purpose so that my wife can tell me later that, no, I'm serious. We come on Sundays to worship God, to remember Christ, 
to break bread sometimes and to give God glory for what the cross means in our life, in each other's lives, and, and his purpose in the world with the cross. But Monday through Saturday, Christians need to learn how to work. And I'm not talking about just earning an income or wishing you had somebody else's job or wishing that your kids would hurry up and go to school so that you could get your own time. But to look at your kids or to look at your job or to look at this town or to look at the, the, the different opportunities that you have and to go, how, God, do you want me to use that time and opportunity? How, God, do you want me involved in your mission how, God, am I going to serve you and work and learn through that how you will gift me if I would just trust you, how you will sustain me even when I run into roadblocks, difficult people, or persecution. And so we got to learn as Protestants that we don't diminish grace by talking about the other. We see the fullness of grace, that we leave behind kind of the diamond, so that we can see the mosaic. But biblical theology, in my mind, is a much better guide than sometimes systematic theology where we pluck things out of their context. Let me take this one step further. Paul in Colossians says this, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a, a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Bear with each other. Don't just tolerate, but forgive. Don't just walk away, lean in, and hold it together. Galatians 6.2 Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. See, we can have grace with each other. In fact, the Christian community or the church is one of the means by which God brings grace into our lives. So we don't just step away and, man, give them some grace. We come up underneath and carry. We empower each other. We labor into holding each other and bringing it along when we're weak. Um, I'm not perfect. I grieve broken relationships in my life, friendships that I've lost. And I guarantee you at least half of them were my fault, and I'm aware of that. And at, at this point in my life and at this age, I grieve that. I am not perfect. I don't just need you to tolerate me. I need you to accept my weaknesses and to say where you're weak and not strong enough to be the complete person will carry that. That we've got energy or power or grace for that. And you need me to do the same. You know that? You don't just need me to let you alone. You need me to love you enough that I'm willing to put energy into accepting and holding and carrying you forward. We do that one for another. 
And as we do that, it comes together and we get knit into a body. It says uh, that we grow together in love as each one does its part, the body does. That when we all lean in, that there's something dynamic and, and incredibly strong about that. I'm so sick of people leaving church. Like I thought about writing a blog post on loyalty. And I'm not talking about Antioch. I don't, I don't care about that. I just grieve that people don't give a rip about the local church anymore. They come only for what they can get. And when they're not getting what they want, it's so easy just to go out the back door. You're not even going to tell anyone you're leaving because it, doesn't, it was never about them. It was about the next thing that I desire that I want to get. Or, ah, I saw some weaknesses. I knew it just like a church or just like that guy thinks he's so whatever, right? Um, so now that I saw weaknesses, pff, I'm going to go somewhere else where the first impression will allow me to be deluded enough to think that there's no weaknesses there. I don't want people to come to Antioch and think that our strengths are great and then say, this is my, my church. I want people to come to Antioch and say, I'm willing to take the bad with the good and accept the bad. I'm willing to hold the bad parts of Antioch. I'm willing to carry the bad parts of the people at Antioch so that when it happens, I don't just move on like a consumer, but I, I treat it like family. Because the bad parts of family, guess what? They're still there next Thanksgiving. But if people that came into this church looked for the bad and said, I'm okay with that. I'm going to covenant and be loyal like marriage um, for better or for worse. I'm accepting the whole thing. And I'm tying myself to it. And I think, I think America needs Christians that will understand it's not just about a transaction with them and God and that we never leave adoption or being purchased out of the store or redeemed that we just stay there and never realize that it's relational not transactional and that relational includes the mission in this world with the people of God not just me and God God's covenant is with God's people and we get to be a part of that it's the body of Christ and I'm a part of that So I, don't, I didn't set out to attack grace. I, I set out to say it's grace from beginning to end. But it's not all things are from, through, and to grace. We don't worship grace. All things are from, through, and to God, says Paul in Romans. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. So I didn't sign up to make an idol out of grace. We've been redeemed by the grace of God to be on mission from God. Being carried and borne onward by the power of God and the saints sitting in the church next to us. And if you'll stand with me with the saints to your left and the right, I'd just love to read a benediction and then we're done today. So hear the word of the Lord. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. You may be seated.